You can open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10. Uh, in case you don't know me, my name's Rob. I'm the senior pastor here, and I get the joy of opening the scriptures with you. So Luke 10, and uh, we're picking up at verse 25. I'm sure you have seen one of those pharmaceutical commercials where they are talking about some medical condition and the new drug that's going to solve everything. Of course, it's all rainbows and gumdrops and puppy dogs as they're showing the person experiencing all the benefits of the medicine until, of course, you get to the end of the commercial and then there is the narrator who reads the disclaimer. <laughs> now, I actually found a funny one online, a funny disclaimer, and I want, I want to read it to you. It says, enjoy our product. Use only as directed. Side effects are uncommon, but may include headache, nausea, indigestion, fatigue, inability to breathe, rapid metabolism, rash, sudden loss of vision in one eye or both eyes, the ability to smell colors, anxiety, excitement, depression, addiction, twitching, constipation, excessive cough, blue urine, weight loss, weight gains, fever, lycanthropy, which in case you don't know that one, that is werewolf syndrome. And uh, our own Pastor James struggles with that. He must keep a well-trimmed beard at all times to stave it off. Psoriasis, hallucinations, hypertension, abdominal pain, dry mouth, spasms, renal failure, diabetes, bloating, irritability, tinnitus, and death. May contain gluten. If condition persists, consult your physician. Of course, that is a, a, a funny, funny uh, disclaimer. Now, the medical pharmaceutical companies, of course, are required to do this in order to give us full disclosure, right? If they had it their way, they would just give you that, that puppy dog's rainbow's version of what their drug can do for your life. But the disclosure helps us to weigh the risks and they're obviously communicating things that they would otherwise not want to communicate. Which got me to thinking, what if there was a narrator who was reading the full disclosure of our own inner thoughts as we were communicating? And we all have a, a, a front stage self and a backstage self. The front stage, of course, is the me that I like to present publicly. The backstage is the me that I kind of wish people didn't know everything about. So imagine in a conversation, you have front stage John. Someone comes up to John and they say, John, how are you doing? And front stage John says, I'm doing great. How are you doing? But what if the narrator then read the disclaimer? Actually, John is really stressed out right now. John has been a workaholic for the last so many weeks, and he is working so much. John just had a significant argument with his wife, Mary, last night because John thinks that he knows everything. And what if the disclaimer went even deeper? What if it revealed our inner biases, our hidden thoughts towards other people that we've been called to love? I've been thinking about that. And remember, the parables are designed to find a back window to challenge us. And in this story, Jesus is going to have a dialogue with a lawyer. And this lawyer has a very 
polished front stage. When he presents himself, he looks good. But as you examine the backstage of the lawyer, it's not so pretty. He has some significant biases and prejudices which run contrary to God's law. So we're going to pick up with that interaction at Luke 10, 25, and we'll read the verse 29. The text says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now that is an odd question. What shall I do to inherit? Can you do anything to inherit something? No. An inheritance is given to you by someone who's been thoughtful and planned and has your best interests in mind. Well, Jesus responds to him and he says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Now we've all met that, that person that believes they are the smartest person in the room. I mean, when they ask a question, they're not asking it to find out an answer. They're asking it to let everyone know just how smart they are, right? And here you have this lawyer, this well-trained individual in the law of God, and he's asking a question that he believes he already knows the answer to. What should I do to inherit life? And then Jesus somewhat redirects the conversations. Well, how do you understand it? How do you read the law? And he goes, wrote, love God, love others. The text says he's trying to spring a trap on Jesus, but Jesus turns the trap back on him. As he responds to the lawyer's rote, verbal utterance of the law, Jesus says to him, that's a great answer. Now go do it. How humiliating. Here you have someone well-versed in the law of God, and Jesus is now telling him, go practice what you preach. Now the guy, of course, he's trying to save face, and he asks, well then, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, don't miss the point of this misguided question, who is my neighbor? You see, by asking who is my neighbor, the question is insisting that there must be some kind of a definition for neighbor, that there are clear boundaries. Only some people are our neighbor. In fact, if you were to hear the the narrator on the inner monologue of this lawyer, he would be saying something like this. My neighbor is only the people who are my ethnic relatives who practice the law of God in the same way that I do. Clearly, my neighbor are not Gentiles, and we all know that God hates the Samaritans. They cannot be my neighbor. This guy, he knew the scriptures. And he interpreted Leviticus 19.18 very exactly. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And from this passage, he would have argued that the law of God says that your neighbor is from your own people. I mean, never mind that Leviticus 19.34 goes on to say, 
When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. You see, like so many, the lawyer liked to read the Scriptures selectively. It's an age-old problem. It's just as old as our tendency to fail to live up to what we express intellectually. What, who should I love? Well, God says that I should love everyone. So I love everyone in the whole wide world. Well, then the question comes, who do you actually love? Well, I love people who think like me, look like me, laugh at my jokes, and are generally easy people to love. You see, here's a big point that I want you to consider. It is not uncommon to love the idea that you love people rather than to actually love people themselves. We love the idea of it more than we actually practice it. Karl Marx was the poster child of this. If you look at his life and his history, you come to find out that he was constantly, passionately preaching and teaching that people need to elevate the lower class, the proletariat, but historians say that Marx never set foot in a mill or a factory. He never had a friendship with someone from the proletariat. He spent all of his time pontificating with people from the bourgeoisie, the middle class. In fact, if you look at the last two decades of his life, he spent all of his time in middle class living, and for the last decade of his life, he had two servants at all times. Again, all humans find it difficult to live up to what we espouse intellectually. Who do I love? I love everyone. Who do you actually love? Well, I actually don't associate with those kind of people. I don't go in those types of neighborhoods. I certainly don't want my son or daughter marrying someone from that background. Again, what would the narrator say if they were reading the inner dialogue? Well, instead of directly confronting the lawyer's hidden prejudices, Jesus says, let me tell you a story. So we pick up at verse 30. Jesus replied, And a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was some 15 miles and literally, they would go down some 3,000 feet in elevation. It would bring you into some very tight places. And in these tight, confined places, robbers would hide. And that's just what happens to this guy. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. If you've ever seen someone in this condition, you know what it looks like. Chipped teeth blackened eyes, hair matted with blood. And you would hope that if someone found themselves in this type of condition, that people would stop and do something about it. But that's not always the case. It makes me think of this story I heard just recently. A woman was assaulted in a subway train in Philadelphia. 
And on that train, you know, while she's having the worst day of her life, you can imagine, you would hope that people would stop and do something about it, call the police, intervene in some sort of way. But instead of doing any of that, you know what they did? They pulled out their cell phones and filmed it. It's a story as old as history. And Jesus continues, Now by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, this road was frequented by priests. It's said that Jericho was the residence of 12 of the 24 orders of the priests, they would go from Jericho, do their two weeks of service, and then head back to Jericho where they lived. A lot of commentators, as they start unpacking this and asking the question, why did they avoid this man? They, they would suggest that it has something to do with this priest and Levite fearing that if they were to approach a half-dead man and then he really died, they would become ceremonially unclean and they wouldn't be able to fulfill their priestly duties. But I want to suggest that it runs deeper than that. You see, by the law of God, they were required to stop and risk defilement. But there was a nuance in their mind. Only for a neighbor. Now, in the Middle East, there are a lot of different ethnic groups that are living around one another. And and the way that they would distinguish one from another involved three things. How you dressed, what language you spoke, and what your accent sounded like. Now, did you hear the details that Jesus told us about the condition of the man? It says that he was stripped and he was unconscious. They didn't have any of the cues to go by. They didn't know what he was wearing, and they couldn't hear him speak. How could they distinguish whether or not this man was truly a neighbor? When you think about that, it creates a real dissonance, we come to realize, when you ask the question, who is my neighbor? And you find yourself in absurd circumstances. Here you have a man that's clearly desperate and in need, and he's even the right kind of neighbor, according to the priests and Levites. They should have stopped for him. But because they didn't have the cues, they didn't have the dress, they didn't have the accent, they didn't have the language, they passed by the very man who they believed in their own theology, the law of God said they should help. I was reflecting on this a great deal even more. I began to realize that when we create definitions for the term neighbor, we are in fact destroying relationships. Because the law of God says this, love your neighbor as yourself, and we come back to the law of God and we say, yes, certainly, Lord, but who is my neighbor? And then when I ask that question, I'm hedging the command. I'm saying, God, you know, (laughs) I intellectually agree with what you're saying here, but I don't actually want to go through with the commitment that is involved in loving my neighbor. The Holy Spirit has had this heavy on my heart. You know, I was thinking about the racial injustice 
that's been talked about quite a bit over the last two years in our own country. You know, what I found despicable in this whole conversation is how polarized it's been handled and the way it's been treated. It's, it's become talking points in a public stage, and it's happening in front of us, and you need to be involved in this camp, and you need to join this side. Unless you find yourself articulating it like this, then either one, you really don't care about this group, or you don't care about that group. Here's what I want to suggest with all of this. We actually need to sit down and talk to one another. And I've been thinking about my black brothers and sisters in particular, and I've sat down across the table from them. And you know what they're saying? They're saying, I don't always feel equal. I don't always feel safe in my own country. When I was first hearing these things, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I became self-protective. The thought process went something like this. Jesus, who's my neighbor? Well, I don't really need to concern myself with this situation because I'm not a part of the problem. I'm not a racist. But the more I thought about that and the more the Holy Spirit worked on my heart, the more he just said things like this. Would you sit across the table from someone who told you I've been abused by my spouse and would your response to that person be, I'm not an abuser? No, of course not. I would say, I'm so sorry. Abuse is wrong. I'm so sorry this has happened to you, and how can I help? I was talking to a friend. He said he drove down one particular road time and again, and over the course of three years, he was pulled over 20 times. And you know what Satan has done? He has made it political. He knows that God loves biblical diversity. And so what does he say? He says, well, I'm going to get these people to kind of broad brush the whole issue and say everyone's racist. I'm going to get some of these people to justify themselves and feel like I can stand away from it because I'm going to say I'm not a racist. They're going to get the police officers involved. They're going to get everyone to form camps instead of sitting across the table, listening to one another, learning together, and uniting you know what happens when we unite? Well, incredible things. You see, Satan loves division. The Holy Spirit of God loves unity. Listen to the Holy Spirit of God. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I don't want to just love the ideal of loving my black brothers and sisters. I want to love them. And I'm telling you, as we do this as Christians in the church, you will see significant things happen if we do it well. Let me continue into the parable. Jesus is telling the story, and the lawyer and his hearers, they're expecting to hear one thing, but they don't get what they're expecting. You see, they expected the story to flow like this. The priest, he didn't stop. 
the Levite, he didn't stop. But then, you know, the average, ordinary, everyday Jewish Israelite, well, he came along and he helped the man. You see, we all like to conceive of ourselves as being the hero of the story. But that is not how Jesus told the story. No, he says in verse 33, but then a Samaritan came to where he was. Now, here's the problem with how we hear the translation. We hear the word Samaritan, and that is synonymous to us with humanitarian. That's what we hear. (laughs) They didn't hear it like that. Uh, They heard it more like this. But then a suspicious immigrant from a country with known terrorist groups came. You see, they looked at these people, and their descent was questionable, and their theology was questionable. So when Jesus tells this story, there is literally shock on every face in the room. How could he possibly make this guy the hero of the story? Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. You see the difference between the Samaritan and the priests now, right? The difference is the priests were marked by their definitions. The Samaritan, if you look at verse 33, is marked by the word compassion. It's a big difference. What does he do? Well, he does everything available to him to help this man in his time of need. He's not looking for the cues. He's not concerned with the dress. He's not concerned with the access. He pours out the oil, the wine, the bandages. He uses his own animal, his time, his resources. And what's even more incredible is this Samaritan places himself in great risk to help this Jewish man. Think about it. He's in Jewish territory. What do you think people in a Jewish village are going to think if a Samaritan walks in with a beat-up man on his donkey? I mean, mob justice could ensue. He took all of those considerations under advisement, and he looked at the man, and in his state, he said, I don't care. I don't want to risk it. I'm taking him. It tells us that he gave two denarii to care for the man. Now that is equivalent to two weeks worth of food and lodging for this man. And he also tells the innkeeper, whatever else he needs, I'm writing a blank check today. I will make good for it. Did you know that innkeepers in Jesus's day were nefarious characters? I mean, that's like walking into some smooth, slick, used place, you know, whatever, whoever you want to insert in the picture. And and that guy is looking to run up the bill, right? He says, blank check. I don't care if you run up the bill, whatever it costs. And what's even more risky is if this individual runs up the bill beyond his means to pay it, that was a debt which might throw him into prison. Well, Jesus asks the question, look at verses 36 and 37, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? 
The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Notice he can't even say the Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Notice how Jesus reversed the question. The lawyer's asking the question, who is my neighbor? Or said differently, Jesus, who do I have to love? Who do I have to love? Jesus comes back with the better question, to whom must I become a neighbor? What is our definition of neighbor? How should we define it? Well, the real answer is, You really can't put a definition to it. You can only be a neighbor, and neighborliness is defined by love. And look at what love looked like for this Samaritan. The first thing we see about love is that love does not define or distinguish. I love what T.W. Manson says, love does not begin by defining its object. It discovers them. And that's just what this Samaritan did. He saw a man who was naked and incapacitated. So two things define neighbor for him, nearness and need. And I want to submit to you this morning that that should be our definition of neighbor as well, nearness and need. So we are constantly praying and asking the question, God, who should I love? God, who do you want me to love? And God says the answer's always right in front of you. Nearness and need. The people I put in your path today are the people that I expect you to love. Which leads to another point about love. Love does. Kent Hughes writes, love for people or lack of it, reveals the quality and effectiveness of the philosophy we hold. We we sing that song, you will know we are Christians by our love. Love does. Love does not pontificate. It does not virtue signal. It does not only act when it's convenient to do so. Love does. Love even places itself at great risk for the sake of the other. The final observation is that love for our neighbor is born out of genuine love for God. And I derive this principle from Galatians 5, 13 to 15. Paul wrote this to that church. He said, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, did you hear what he just said there? The whole law is defined by one word. You see, word was synonymous with a law. If you look at the Ten Commandments, they would have been called the Ten Words by the Jewish people. And when Jesus asked this this lawyer, what does the law say? He gave Jesus two words, right? He said, love God and love others. But now we're looking at the Apostle Paul, and he's saying that you can take all of the law and distill it now down to one word, which I want to suggest is contrary to my expectation. I would have expected him to say that you distill it down to one word, love God. But what does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? 
Well, essentially what he's saying, if you say that you love God, but you don't love your neighbor, you are fooling yourself. You don't really love God. You love the idea of loving God, but you don't really love him. The only way you can really love God according to the scriptures is you love the people who are near you, the people who are in need. You show it by loving other brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. You show it by loving the people at work around you, even the people that you might classify as your enemy. You show it by loving the people in the places where we don't like to go, like some of those places in Hyannis, for example, that some of us talk about. That's how you love God. You love them. So how do we apply this? Well, I want to talk to four tendencies. Four tendencies that cause us to not be a good neighbor. Now, normally when we apply, we want to think positively, but sometimes we have to observe the negative in order to get to the positive. So the first tendency I want to submit to you this morning is strategic neglect. What is strategic neglect? Well, if I don't see the stranger beaten on the road, then I don't need to feel guilty about anything, and I don't need to do anything. In fact, if I come to realize that there is one particular road where strangers are being beaten often, I just avoid that road altogether, and then I'll be all set. That is not what God wants from us. No, God wants us to become better informed so that we might love the stranger or neighbor well. Second tendency is to become overly vague or to speak in broad generalities. Everyone is my neighbor. That's a nice sentiment, but it doesn't mean anything. No, you have to define neighbor by nearness and need. And as we begin to see who our neighbor is, then we can actually practice real love toward them. Third tendency is what I call the I'm too busy syndrome. That's where there is no margin or space in my calendar to actually practice meaningful love. Remember what I said about busyness in the Strategy of Satan series? Busyness is being under Satan's yoke. It turns out that we actually do have margins for the things we want to have margins for. But if we make space, if we create margin for loving our neighbor, then we can do it. The fourth tendency is what I call keeping strangers at a distance. We all have a stranger category. It might involve racial difference, ethnic difference, language barriers, generational differences. You guys ready to answer a question? Pick your heads up, smile, be happy. How does a stranger become a neighbor? You talk to them. Thank you. You what? You love them. What else? How does a stranger become a neighbor? Listen to them. Hi, my name is Rob. Would you like to have coffee sometime? I want to suggest that the way a stranger becomes a neighbor is the same way we always do it, right? I love what Rosaria Butterfield says. She says, the gospel comes with a house key. It comes with a house key. So as people cross the barrier to the home or to that space where we can sit down, look eyeball to eyeball, 
dialogue, listen to one another. That's how a stranger becomes a neighbor. Are you intentional with that? Do you invite people into the space of becoming a neighbor? What do we learn from this parable this morning? Well, it's actually quite simple. Love does not define. Love does. And to love God well, I need to love the people around me well. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Lord, this morning as we look at your word, we see you as the God who does see. And uh, Lord, while we create the categories, you do not. tells us in your scriptures that you show no partiality. I pray, God, that you would move in us to be a people who celebrate diversity, who love the other, who make the stranger our neighbor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.